this morning's message is growing up. I thought that was a appropriate theme for this baby dedication weekend. Those babies will grow up, be, be like the kids that were up here, the kids will grow up and become adults. I figure most of you have probably figured you're already grown up, you know, that's kind of behind you. But what the Bible says is that for someone who's come to God, the spiritual life is really a lot like growing up as a child. It's, you start at one point, you, you come to God, and you're at one point in your spiritual journey, and then over time you grow up. The Bible says that it's God's intention that we change, that we transform, that we develop, that we become mature. And uh, that word mature, it, today is it's kind of slipping into euphemistic usage. You know, mature is like an old person. Um, but at its best, the word mature means fully developed. It means becoming who you were meant to be, reaching your full potential. And that's what we're talking about this morning. That verse that you just heard Carla read, take a look at your program. I want to look at it again together. The author of Hebrews says to these Christians he's writing to, you're like babies who need milk and can't eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant, doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the basic difference, the difference between right and wrong. So let us stop going over the basic teaching about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely don't, we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. I want to focus on that last phrase for a second. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. If you've been here for the last seven weeks, what you know is that we've spent seven weeks now focused just on that last sentence. The, the exact thing that he says, don't just stop with this. This isn't enough. We've spent seven weeks, the last seven weeks in this series that we just finished up, talking about the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing your faith in Christ. That's all we've been talking about. That to come to God, you've got to have this attitude of dependence. You've got to have this humility. You've got to have this trust. You've got to have this brokenness. You've got to have this conviction for sin. And that is essential. It is foundational. But it's not the end of the story. There's more to it than that. God says, after that happens, then it's time for you to start growing up. Then it's time for you to start working. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The Bible says that when you come to God, you become a new creation. When you come to God, there's a the image that it uses is a, a death and a resurrection or a, a new birth. And I think that for a lot of people who have come to God, there's this question of, okay, well, when does the new stuff start happening? You know, I feel kind of the same as I used to before. What's really different about me? It says I'm a new creation. Am I really? What's new? It says I've died and risen again. That seems kind of like an extreme image for the actual differences I see in my life. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, how that happens, what our part is in that. I want to structure the message like this, three different sections. First, I want to talk about the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other system of um, moral thought or religious thought, every other approach to God. Um, second, I want to talk about why that fundamental difference doesn't mean what you think it means. There's one pervasive misconception that has lasted throughout millennia now, and I want to debunk that second. And then third, I want to talk about how do you stay motivated to do what's right? How do you stay motivated to be mature? And after we cover those first two points, you'll see why motivation is a particular problem. It's a particular puzzle we have to solve. So first, what's the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other approach to God or morality? Second, why that fundamental difference doesn't mean what you think it means. And then third, 
Where do you find motivation for being good? Before we get into that, let's pray together. God, as we look this morning at your truth about growing up, about becoming mature, about being people that are becoming more and more like you every day, pray that you would show us what our part is, that you'd show us how we can be active in this, that you'd teach us that this is something that we can participate in, and that you'd give us the desire to do it. Please open our hearts, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So first, the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other approach to God or to morality. Most religious systems or moral systems kind of approach the whole thing like this. There's this spectrum. Um, and, you know, being really bad is over here. And being, like, perfect, really good is over here. And the goal of life, basically, is kind of move this way. Um, and you do good things and you kind of inch this way. And then you do some bad things and you take a couple of steps forward and you try to have the good outweigh the bad so you can keep moving t toward this ultimate goal of perfection. Now, you know you're never going to get there, but you keep trying to move. And somewhere along this spectrum, somewhere, where nobody really knows where, but somewhere there's this magic line where after you cross over it, you're in, you're justified, you're righteous, you're acceptable to God, you're a good person. But short of that, you know, you're still working on it. And so you're just trying your whole life to get to that place. And since you don't know where it is, you can kind of never let up. It's the way most um, systems of thought approach uh, being righteous or good or approaching God. Now, what does Christianity say? What does the Bible say? The Bible says, we'll tell you where the line is. This is good news. If you want to you know, know how to get past the line, you want to know where it is. And what the God of the Bible says is... The, it's not what you want to hear. The line's out here. The line, the standard, the, the point where you cross over from being not good to good, acceptable to me, isn't some midway point along the way. It's at the end. It's perfection. It's complete perfection. It's total goodness. And that seems like really harsh at first. You know, it seems like it doesn't quite seem fair. Nobody can, can do that until you think about how arbitrary it would be to put the line anywhere else. And how do you think about what kind of God would it be that would accept, you know, kind of halfway efforts? He says, I'm holy, I'm good, I'm righteous, I'm just, I'm pure. I'm not a God that is tolerant of wrongdoing. I'm not a God that's tolerant of evil. And the only thing that's going to be acceptable to me is total perfection. Well, that if that was all the Bible said, I don't think that many people would be very excited about it. But it doesn't just say that. God goes on to say something else. And the second part is why the Bible has been the best-selling book in every language, most printed book in every language, every year for 2,000 years running. The second part is this. God says, okay, that's the standard. What I'm going to do is, let's, let's be honest, you're not going to make it, right? You're not going to get to there. So here's the plan. I will basically buy your way in. I'll kind of do what I can to get you there, even though you're not there on your own merit. I know of some people, maybe you do too, that... Um, got into the college or university of their choice, um, not on the basis of their grades, but because they had a relative or their dad or somebody who made a large gift to the university. Um, and then they're in, you know, they're accepted. And they didn't deserve to be there, but they got in because of what somebody else had done for them. They bought their way in. That's essentially what God does with us in this acceptability to him, this righteousness. He buys our way in. 
but it's a lot more costly than um, like a new library or a new student center or something like that. What the Bible says is the, the way this transaction takes place is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God says, okay, I'll come to earth, and what I'll do is I'll be that person you're supposed to be. I'll live that life, and then I'll die a death as if I deserved it. So I'll live the life you should have lived. I'll die the death that you should have died. And what we'll do is we'll swap. We'll trade. I'll give you, I'll tribute to you my righteousness, and I'll take your condemnation on myself. And that's what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about. Now, I don't want to get too cute about it. Like, th this is the greatest mystery in the universe. And I just summed it up in two sentences, you know. So this is, no, this is not something that you can ever plumb the depths of. Uh, the greatest minds in every generation have applied themselves to this question of, well, how does that work? You know, you say the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ atones for the sins of mankind, makes a way to God. How does that work? And once you start asking that question, the discussion goes on literally forever. And generation after generation after generation has added to our understanding of it, has given a new layer, a new angle. It's never completely exhausted that question because we're talking about the greatest mystery in the universe. It doesn't mean that you can't still appropriate this for yourself. It doesn't mean that you can't still own it, commit to it, believe in it. For the normal Christians, for us normal non-theologian Christians, the, the idea is not that you understand exactly how this mystery works. It's that you believe it. It's that you commit yourself to it. What the Bible says is in that believing, in that commitment, there is salvation. There is justification. There is acceptance. You're led in. God says, okay, because of Jesus, I want you as part of my family because of what Jesus has done. And what we've been talking about over the last seven weeks is that the only thing you have to do to accept that gift is just realize you need it. You just have to say, God, I've blown it. And I'm never going to get there. And that's why we've talked about how important it is that you recognize that you need it. Because the only people that get left outside are the people that think they don't need help. It's like the, you know, in school, there's a party and the cool people get to go to the party and you get invited if you're cool. And now, greatest party ever, the, the people that get to go are the people who admit, I'm not cool. The only people left on the outside are the people that thought they were already cool enough. And that's why I've been hammering for seven weeks how dangerous it is if you're kind of a cool, put-together person. You're the one that's most in danger because you're the one that's, that's least likely to realize that you need Jesus to help you get there. If I had to sum up Christianity in a sentence to somebody, I would say, Jesus turns everything upside down. People that were on the outside are now on the inside. The people that were last are now first. That's the subversive message of Christianity. So you've got this spectrum, and everybody, everybody along the spectrum, no matter where you fall on it, if you're here or if you're really good over here, everybody gets in the exact same way, which is by saying, I'm not good enough. God, will you take me anyway? Now, that seems unfair for a second if you're like, well, this person has you know, let's say 100 points of goodness, you know, and this person has 10,000 points of goodness. They both get in the same way. That doesn't seem quite fair. Well, if you compare 10,000 to 100, they look a lot different. But I think that the mathematicians among us would back me up in saying that if you compare 100 and 10,000 both to infinity, they look identical. They're the exact same thing. And coming to Christ means realizing that means realizing we're all in the same boat and I'm only going to be acceptable to God because of what Jesus has done for me. That is the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other approach to God or morality. That's the first thing I want to talk about this morning.
The second thing is why that difference doesn't mean what you think it might mean. What's the misconception? What's this pervasive misconception that still persists? The misconception is, okay, so if I'm acceptable to God by God's grace alone, if God does it all for me, if I only get in because of what he did, not because of what I did, then it must also be the case that I transform, I become a better person, I grow up only by God's work in me. It's only what God does that makes me kind of become a different person. What the Bible says is that that's not true. That God saving you, God accepting you into his family is all 100% him. But then once you're part of his family, you growing, you becoming who he wants you to be, you living up to it is also up to you. It's a shared effort. It's a joint venture. So going back to the example of the person who's led into a school on the basis of you know some relative or something else besides their own grades or their own merits. Two cases... One is you could have a student that, you know, gets into Yale or whatever, and they're um, really like a community college grade student or, you know, Podunk State or whatever. No offense to those of you that went to Podunk State. I'm sure that you were stellar, and I didn't go to a good school either, so we can have a, um outsider's pity party after the service. But anyway, so let's so you've got this person that gets into Yale and doesn't belong there. Um the first possibility is that they, from that point on, just become totally, like, depressed. That they're, like, so outsmarted by all their classmates that they really don't belong there. And they just stay exactly the person they are, and nothing changes. The second possibility is you have somebody that gets into a school they don't deserve to be at, and they decide, you know what, I'm going to work so hard now that I'm here. And they actually become, even though they weren't to begin with, they become a Yale caliber student. They become the type of student that deserves to be there in the end almost because of how hard they work once they're there. And what the Bible says is once God declares you righteous on the basis of Christ, then he expects you after that then to start working to live up to it, to try to become that person. And if you were here the last seven weeks, this is the point at which you should start to feel somewhat confused because for seven weeks in a row, what we talked about is you got to give up. You got to stop trying to do it on your on your own. You can't become good by yourself. And in fact, your own efforts to try to run your own life and be your own person, that's what's getting in the way of you coming to God. You got to give up. Your own effort can't do it. It's not by your own strength. And now this morning I'm saying, but don't forget it. It's kind of like all up to you. You know, you got to work. You got to get out there and try your very hardest. Don't forget about that part. And it's like, well, what? That sounds pretty contradictory. You know, where? Do, how do these two things fit together? So here's the image. It's all a matter of before and after. Think of a person out in the ocean drowning and they're flailing their arms. And there's this lifeguard there that wants to save them. But before the lifeguard can intervene, the person has to stop moving you know a lifeguard can't go after someone until they've totally given up or else they'll take the lifeguard down with them so if you're out there drowning your first step your only step is just to give up and trust that god's going to take you so lifeguard takes the person into shore then what a normal lifeguard you know day is done at that point they're they're on the sand but the way it is with god is he says at that point okay I didn't just want to save you. I didn't want to just drag you out of this mess. Now I want to coach you. Now I want to be with you. Now I want to spend the rest of your life with you, teaching you to swim, teaching you to be this person that you could be. Now at that point, 
the same thing that was killing you before is not going to be the thing that, that is going to help you. Because before, you're flailing, you're moving, your energy, you thinking that you could save yourself, you trying so hard, is the very thing that's preventing you from being saved. But then after that, let's say God says, okay, now let's get to work. Then it's going to take some energy. Then that same sort of energy you're going to have to apply, but with his help under his care. So the thing that was hurting you before is helping you now. And it's all a matter of before or after once God comes into your life, that effort that before was keeping you from admitting your need for him now becomes something that he redeems and uses for good. So the, the misconception is, okay, well, I, if, I, if I get in by God's grace alone, not by my own effort, then I must grow or change by God's grace alone, not by my own effort. And that's a misconception. Because think about the lifeguard. Lifeguard can save you all by himself. He doesn't need your help. But he can't teach you to swim all by himself. He can't make you into this athlete all by himself. He needs your cooperation. So the third and final thing I want to talk about, first, the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other system of, of religious thought. And second, why that difference doesn't mean what you think it means. The third thing I want to talk about is how do you become motivated to mature, to grow, to, to train, to kind of become this person through effort. And the reason I think that motivation is a problem is because Christianity divides these two things that every other religious system integrates. And the, they're integrated in this, the other systems for a reason. Christianity says, okay, here's acceptability to God. Here's getting in. Here's becoming part of God's family. This is its own category. God does it all by himself. You just have to accept it. Then the second category is changing, becoming good, doing all these good things, becoming a righteous, holy person in your actions. That's by God's grace and your effort put together. Two separate categories. They, they break this link between them. Now, in breaking the link, something very dangerous happens because what's the primary motivation for being good, for trying hard, for really doing your best to do good things and become a certain type of person? For most people, the primary motivation is, I want to get in. I want to make it to, to heaven or to God or to whatever. I want to be on the other side of that line. That's what keeps you going, what keeps you pushing, what keeps you driving. And if all of a sudden Christianity says, no, you just get in by God's grace, but work really hard anyway, it's kind of like you're scratching your head a little bit and saying, well, wh why? Why should I? Um, irreligious people sometimes think of, religion as something that was invented to keep people in line it's like a way to kind of keep people on their best behavior i don't that may be true of some religions i don't know i don't really i can't really say authoritatively but i know that that's not true of christianity because if you're trying to invent a religion to keep people in line the stupidest idea i can think of is to say oh let's tell people they can go to heaven even if they're bad that doesn't make any sense. You're sitting around the invent a religion meeting conference table, you know, and you float that idea like, hey, how about this thing about like people get to go to heaven even if they're bad? And you're going to get laughed out of the room. It makes no sense if the goal is to try to control behavior. And it leaves this problem of why should I try really hard, put all this effort forward to be good even if my eternal destiny isn't riding on it? People don't want to admit that they have this question, but if you hear it, if you really hear what the message of Christianity is, what the gospel is all about, you can't help but think it. If you're not thinking this, if you're not wondering this, you didn't even really get it. And people have been asking it from the very beginning since the first century of Christianity. Take a look here on the back of your outline. 
we looked at the passage from Hebrews first, the, the top paragraph. Skip down to the fourth paragraph on the page, starting with the word God. First, the Apostle Paul here talks about the essence of the Christian message, which I just talked about. This is a great distillation of this. God will also count us righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised our Lord from the dead. He, Jesus, was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, as we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for sinners, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. That's everything we just said. That's everything we just talked about. Now what comes next? Now he starts responding to objections. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Or, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean that we can go on sinning? Of course not. So he answers in the negative. But I want to take the rest of our time this morning to see why it's not the case. Because it's those are legitimate questions. Well, if it's all by God's grace, why not just keep doing bad stuff? Why try to have all this effort to be good? Well, if, if God's grace just increases the more bad stuff we do, then good for God. You know, let him have all the more grace toward us. I want to talk about four reasons why post-salvation, post-God saving you by his own grace and accepting you into his family without any of your own merit, after that, why you should still, nevertheless, be motivated to try to become the person that he wants you to be. Why you should show up for practice every day instead of just hanging out on the sand. Four reasons. The first three Paul talks about in this passage, and there's a fourth one that I want to talk about as we close. First, I've got these numbered here uh, in the rest of Romans 5 and 6. First, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. The first reason that you want to be good, that you want to become a good person after you've been saved by God's grace, is because you can, because you're free to. What the Bible says is that basically before God comes into your life, you don't have any choice but to mess up. There's nothing going for you. You're just out there flailing around. And then after God comes and saves you, is it true that you could still just go out there and flail around? Is it true that you could still go out there and live the exact same way that you were living before? Sure, but why would you want to? You're free to do something different now. Second reason. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. For you were dead, but now you have new life. The second reason to try to become good, to try to mature, to try to grow, to put effort toward this, is out of gratitude. Because God has saved you, he's given you new life, and you try to become this person as a way of saying to God, thank you, I, this matters to me, I'm grateful for what you've done, instead of just saying, you know, well, now that you've saved me, I'll kind of do my own thing. The third reason, they're on your program, now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you become slaves of God. Now you do those things to lead to holiness. The third reason that Paul talks about is that before we were slaves to sin in the sense that we could do nothing else. But after God saves you, there is a sense of obligation. There is a sense of, okay, I've saved you, now you belong to me. And, and you say, well, the, th the thing with obedience is, well, what's going to happen if I disobey? You know, what if I don't do what he says? Is he going to disown me? Is he going to throw me out? 
And the Bible is very clear. No, he's not. But that doesn't mean he won't discipline you. That doesn't mean that there won't be some sort of consequence. So those are the first three reasons for being good, even after you've been saved by God's grace. But I want to spend the the little time that we have left really focusing on a fourth one. And the reason I want to focus on it is because I think it's the one that gets the most overlooked. And for me, at least, I don't know if this is a, a sign of immaturity or what, but for me, this one is the one that kind of has the most power, has the most force, really gets me going the most. The fourth reason the Bible says to try really hard to be good, to do good, even if your eternal destiny isn't writing on it, is for reward, is for eternal reward. Um, and we don't like this idea. I don't know why. I don't know why it bothers us so much. But we are so taken up with the idea that everything we do as people, the good things we do should be 100% altruistic. No thought of ourselves. No thought of what's in it for me. This has become this like moral ideal. And it's really a confusion. It's really kind of a perversion, in fact, of a true moral ideal, which is self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice is what God requires. Self-sacrifice is what's really worthy, what's really kind of the moral high ground. Altruism doesn't necessarily really relate that closely. Self-sacrifice is what we care about. So if you have this guy that like jumps out in front of a, a moving truck to save some stranger, and he's afterwards he's you know they've got the news cameras on him and he's getting interviewed and he's getting all this attention just imagine somebody like standing off to the side saying like you know i bet that he did it to to be a hero like i bet he was trying to be a hero and the response is who cares like who cares if that's why he was doing it in fact more power to him when we give purple hearts when we give medals of honor we do not give this interview beforehand and say, now, were you at all conscious that you might become a hero before you committed this act of self-sacrifice? No, that would be absurd. In fact, we do the exact opposite. We publicize it. We make a big deal out of it. We want people to know there's a reward for this stuff. And that's not ignoble. That's the, really a high motivation is to do something self-sacrificial for a higher reward. And all through scripture, the people who follow God have this at their heart. They have this motivation at their heart. I put a little insert in your uh, program, just a little white sheet of paper that has a few more verses that I couldn't fit on, uh, on the outline. Take a look at the first one. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make him my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul's saying I have a pretty pragmatic, strategic approach to my life. I'm not this super spiritual person. I'm not this super uh, holy person. I'm not this just like otherworldly person preternaturally. Rather, I see people working really, really hard to attain a certain goal. And I see that, and it's a worthy goal. I, I mean, I, I'd like to have it too. 
But it's a goal, it's a prize that doesn't last. If I'm going to put that much effort in, I think I want it to be for something that lasts. I think I want it to be for something I can keep. He talks about crowns. He's talking about these ancient Greek games where they win the chariot race or whatever, Ben-Hur, and, you know, get a a crown at the end. That seems kind of effeminate to us today. But um, our athletes actually get gaudy jewelry instead for their victories. So it's actually a little bit more effeminate. And I think sometimes we think of like these crowns or rings or medals as like these silly childish things. But the Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible says just make sure you go for ones that last. And people that win these things, they don't think they're silly. You know, if you talk to somebody that's won a Super Bowl ring, I guarantee you that guy doesn't think it's silly. And he's got 350 pounds to back that statement up. You know, he doesn't think it's silly at all, but it doesn't last. I actually have a Super Bowl ring. Um, my uncle, one of my uncles, worked for the San Francisco 49ers for a decade or a little more, and he won three Super Bowl rings during that time. And so he didn't have any kids. So when he passed away a couple of years ago, his nephews got the Super Bowl rings. And my uncle wore those rings, I mean, everywhere. You know, it was his pride and joy. And it was really cool. I mean, I'm not knocking it. It's really, really cool. But now it's you know, sitting in a box in the back of my closet. And that's not cool. That's sad. That's sad. It's sad that this thing that was so important is now just gathering dust. And what the Bible says is, isn't that going to be kind of how it is with everything except one thing? Paul says, you know, I think I don't want to waste my time. I, I don't have anything against going for a big reward. I don't have anything against going for the win. In fact, I'm really competitive. I'm really driven. I just want to play on the highest field. I want to play at the highest level. Take a look at the third passage, the bottom one on that little insert I passed out in the bulletins. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scoring its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Bible says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him so he could sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. Even Jesus, even Jesus is conscious of this reward. Even Jesus is driven by it. And it's a reward that lasts It's a reward that keeps going unlike everything else. So if that's the case, you know, if it's true that you can kind of work in this realm, this realm of being good and doing these things for God and and increasing in your faith, you can work in that realm and then you get rewards that last. Why wouldn't everybody do that? Why wouldn't everybody focus on that? Well, it takes faith because you have to believe it's actually going to happen. And you know, the moment it's one thing to talk about it or hear somebody else talk about it, but at some point you got to stop diverting resources toward the game you're playing and start diverting them toward this other game. And that's scary because you're winning the game you're playing right now, you know, and, and that feels good. That's nice. And then to start losing in that game or start falling behind so you can play this other game instead, that's scary. A guy like Paul, what does he do? He takes all his chips and he puts them somewhere else. You know, he completely, he puts all his eggs in one basket, so to speak. Because he's like, this is the only one that's going to pay out long term. But doing that is hard. Because, you know, you're in the game you're in and you want to keep going with the game you're at. Um, It's like if you've 
I, I played Monopoly a lot growing up. I don't know if we've got any other Monopoly fans out there. But you get so involved in your game of Monopoly that it's kind of like the whole world, you know, and you've got your your bank account, you've got your properties, you've got your other assets, you get out of the jail free card, hold on to that bad boy, you're gonna need that. And you're playing and you're master of the board and you're kind of over the whole thing and it feels really great. And then you win and the game's over and the whole game goes back in the box and it's like it never happened. And God says, every other game's like that. Don't you understand that every other game is like that except this one? Why don't you start going this way instead? But instead of doing that, you know what we do? We actually do the opposite. We actually start taking out a second and third mortgage on our spiritual lives so that we can direct more resources toward these other games that we want to win. So we can have more bandwidth to win, to compete at this other game in this other realm. That is like um, you've got an adult and a child playing Monopoly. The adult's losing, and he pulls out his wallet and says, okay, I'll give you $20 if you let me buy a park place right now. Now, that's stupid. Why? Because one game ends and one game keeps going. The U.S. government is going to last a lot longer than that Monopoly game is going to last. In the exact same way, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is going to last a lot longer than the U.S. government or any other government. It's the only thing that keeps going. Paul says, I want to keep my rewards. Call me crazy, but I want to work for something that lasts. Look at this middle passage on this insert. This is Paul again. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's what we've been talking about. It starts with Jesus. But then if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, or then wood, hair, straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. It's exactly what we've been talking about this morning. You get in, you're acceptable to God, you're part of God's family, not based on anything you've built, just based on the foundation of your faith in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that what you build doesn't matter, because some people are building with wood, straw, some people are building with gold and precious stones. And on the day, on that day when you meet God, the work passes through the fire. Some stuff burns down. All your, you know, the time you spent doing Christian stuff, some of it burns down. Or, or so, for some people, for people that really focused on it, for people that really gave it their all, it passes through the fire and there's a reward. That's the way the Bible talks about it. It's not your salvation that's writing on it, but that doesn't mean that there's not anything writing on it. And the people throughout the Bible, throughout Christian history, who have really kind of figured out how to serve God with everything they've got, they've tapped into this and they've gotten really excited about it. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, it's really something that's pleasing to God because what does it say? It says to God, God, I believe your promises. You say this is what you're going to give me, and I believe you. People like to say, you know, again, with this altruism fetish, um, well, I do what I do, you know, whether there's a reward or not. I don't really care if there's a reward in the end. That's not what it's about for me. 
And when people say that, it's not because they don't care. It's because they don't believe it. They don't believe there's a reward. God doesn't like it when you say, I don't care if there's a reward at the end. He wants you to believe that there is because he's promised it. And if you can have the faith to believe it, you can start diverting resources from one game to the other, and you can start having something that actually lasts. Jesus said the exact same thing when he says, don't store up treasure for yourself on earth where moth and rust decay where thieves break in and steal. I was reminded of that statement a couple weeks ago. I was in the New York Times. Uh, there was a line that caught my eye. Um, the, David Brooks, the he's kind of like the right of center guy on their op-ed page. but And so he had some typical right of center line, which was like, um, Obama must reestablish the link between effort and reward. Obama must reestablish the link between effort and reward. Now, what is Jesus saying when he says, don't store up treasure for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and seal? He's saying, on earth, the link between effort and reward is always going to be broken. It's always going to be broken. If it's not moth and rust and thieves, it's taxes or something else, but it's always going to be broken. On earth, you're always going to put a pound of effort in and get four or five ounces of reward instead. Always. If it's not taxes, it'll be something else. It doesn't matter if there's 10 Republican administrations in a row. I guarantee you that on earth, you will always put in effort at this level and get reward at a lower level. But what Jesus says is, if you put that effort toward the kingdom of heaven, if you put that effort toward a life with God, it's not one pound of effort for four or five ounces of reward. It's not one pound of effort for one pound of reward. It's this one to a hundred ratio. Whoever gives up homes or fields or sacrifices these things for my sake will receive a hundredfold. Why not put your effort there? The argument is, why not put your effort there? So those are the four reasons. The four reasons why, even though your, your salvation, even though your eternal destiny isn't riding on it, even though the foundation of, of Jesus Christ is the way that you get accepted into God's family, why nevertheless, because of those four motivating factors, it still makes a lot of sense to give it all you've got to become this person, to live up to this acceptance that you've been given. I want to close, though, by coming back to where we started. Look at your uh, program again, the last verse there the very bottom on the back of your program. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So it's really sad if somebody um, gets accepted into God's family by God's grace and then kind of just kicks back at that point and kind of doesn't try anymore. But it's also really sad if somebody gets accepted by God's grace and then thinks it's all 100% up to them, because that's not the case either. Don't forget, God's with you. God is with you, and he's the one who wants to give you the strength to do these things. Don't forget that how you got in is through him, and it's because of that grace and that power that, that you're going to be able to start on this journey anyway. So the the flip side is, you know, don't become so wrapped up in it that you forget that it's by him and that it's by his strength and not your own. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see clearly the motivation that we have for becoming the people that you want us to be. We know that it's not by our own effort that we become acceptable to you. We know that we don't have to try to make you love us. But we also know that 
because you love us, you want us to become a certain type of person. And that that transformation is going to take effort on our part, that that transformation is going to take us putting in work and time and energy too. And God, it's difficult for us to put that work and time and energy in because we've got a lot of other things going. And those things, they seem a lot more tangible. So God, I pray that you give us faith. I pray that you give us faith more and more each day, more and more each year, to start moving our energy in the other direction, slowly, maybe at first, so that we can be working for something that lasts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.